this is a familiar story. It's perhaps the most familiar part of the story of Jonah. Everybody knows the big fish. Uh, just for clarification, it's not called a whale. It's just described as a big fish. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they call it the sea monster. I have no idea what kind of fish this was, whether it was a whale or a giant shark or something else. I don't know, and it really doesn't matter. It's a familiar story to us. Uh, if, if anybody asks you about the story of Jonah, this is the part that everybody remembers. And yet there's a danger with becoming too familiar with things. There's a danger of feeling like you know a story so well that you can miss the point or miss some of the details that kind of drive home that point. Sometimes we read this story, uh, the whole story of Jonah, we think it's about the fish. Sometimes we think it's primarily about Nineveh and about their repentance. And while all of that is important, uh, we need to see that the story of Jonah, and, and this chapter captures it uh, quite well, that this story is primarily about God meeting his reluctant prophet with grace. And as we see God meeting Jonah in grace, we're to see both Jesus and ourselves in it. Last week, we looked at uh, the story of the part of the story where Jonah's on the ship with the sailors and God hurls the storm. And we saw that God is a God who pursues his people with relentless grace. Today, what we want to look at is what happens when God at last grabs hold of us with his grace? What happens when God meets us in the depths with saving, steadfast love? How does he work in us? Uh, and the answer to that question, at the very least, we find in Jonah's prayer. God pursued Jonah in his rebellion. He pursued him through the storm. The sailors tossed him into the sea and calmed the storm and now we see that the Lord sent a fish. He appointed a fish sovereignly to go and to swallow Jonah whole. So that Jonah survived in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights before the fish vomited him up in, on dry land. Now what? What happens when God meets Jonah and finally captures him in the midst of his running and meets him with grace? In this prayer... Uh, in this poem that Jonah offers as a prayer, we see three images of sin and salvation. And then after we look at these three images of sin and salvation, I want us to look at three moves that are involved in repentance that seem to be absent from Jonah's prayer of repentance. So three images of sin and salvation and then three moves that are right at the heart of repentance that seem to be absent from Jonah's prayer. First, uh, image number one, the Lord brings up those who have been cast down by their sin. The Lord brings up those he has cast down. You probably noticed this as we were reading through it, that there's this kind of overarching image in the prayer of things being at the bottom. There's a depth to this prayer, and that shouldn't surprise us because the way Jonah has described his own disobedience throughout this story is in a downward trend. You remember the beginning of the story, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, 
get up, go to Nineveh, call out against them because their evil has come up before me. And what does Jonah do? He arises and he goes to Tarshish. But what does he do on the way to Tarshish? He goes down to Joppa, this port city where he finds a ship. And when he finds the ship, what does he do? He goes down onto the ship. And once he's on the ship and this storm comes, what does he do? He goes down underneath the deck of the ship. It's this repeated verb that's telling us Jonah's disobedience is bringing him down. <laughs> Anytime we are running from the Lord and running towards our sin, there's this downward decline. We're not going up. Uh, we're not running up towards God. It's, it's a visual way of saying Jonah's sin was bringing him down. And now, as he's been tossed into the sea, whether out of compassion for the sailors or out of selfishness because he just didn't want to go to Nineveh, either way, Jonah's been tossed into the sea and he is sinking down, down, down to the depths. And it's a picture of where unrepentant sin leads us. It casts us down. Notice the vivid imagery in his prayer. In verse 2, he talks about crying out to the Lord from the belly of Sheol. Uh, what in the world is Sheol? Sheol is the place of the dead. Sometimes it's associated with judgment for the dead, but at the very least, it's the place where the dead are. And Jonah is saying, I'm, I'm all the way in the innermost parts of death itself. That's how far down his sin has gotten him. Verse 3, you cast me into the deep, to the heart of the seas. The flood surrounded me, waves and billows passing over me. Um, again, in verse 6, he's at the roots of the mountains. He's down into the, the realm of death, and the bars are closing over him forever. It's vivid imagery of where our sin leads us when we're running from the Lord and uh, seeking to run towards our sin instead. Jonah describes sin with the imagery of being cast down, being thrown down, and even his own sin bringing him down. And yet, notice how he describes what God does. He called out out of his distress, out of the belly of Sheol, the Lord answered him, and particularly the Lord brought him up. Notice verse 6 especially. Verse 6 is kind of climactic because it, it describes this permanence of where Jonah's sin brings him. He goes down to the land whose bars enclose him forever. It's kind of the imagery of like strong gates on a city being closed and locked so that nothing can get in and nothing can get out. And Jonah's saying, my sin has brought me all the way down to death. And I'm, I'm enclosed behind these bars. And notice he says, forever. Uh, it's a, there's a permanence to it in Jonah's mind. And yet, notice the next part of that verse, verse 6. Yet, you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Sin brings us down, but God in his mercy through Jesus Christ brings us up. He rescues us even from the farthest point that we could go in our sin. Even there, God's grace can meet us in the midst of our sin. So image number one, the Lord brings up those whom he has cast down. Image number two, the Lord restores those he has driven away. Uh, notice especially verse four. So he's talking about 
how the Lord has, has done this. The Lord has cast him into the deep. You cast me into the deep. You cast me into the heart of the seas. Your floods surrounded me. Your waves, your billows passed over me. And then in verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. He's using the language of Eden to describe what sin has done in his life. Uh, you know the story. Adam and Eve in the garden, they're placed there to live in covenant relationship with God, to tend the garden, to be fruitful and so forth. And, and they break God's covenant. They sin against God by eating the fruit that he said not to eat. And, and what does God do after he comes and meets them and, and brings forth their confession, uh, meets them in mercy but also in judgment? What does he do? He drives them out from Eden and places angels with flaming swords at the entrance to the garden to keep them out as a way of saying, uh, your sin keeps you from my presence. Jonah is recognizing, he doesn't say everything, but he's recognizing that this is what sin does, that we cannot live in the presence of a holy God with unforgiven sin. Our sin drives us away. Jonah seems to be realizing that he has gotten the very thing that he asked for. You remember what he was aiming to do in the beginning, to flee from the presence of the Lord. And in some ways, Jonah was given over to that, uh, at least in his experience. As he saw his sin, as he's floating down in the water and offering uh, this prayer in the, from within the belly of the fish, He's recognizing that his sin had cast him out as if he was thrown into exile. Sin drives us out from God's presence when it is unforgiven and unaccounted for. And yet, notice the end of verse 4. I am driven away from your sight, the worst place he could be. Yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, why does he mention here the temple? This is interesting because Jonah is a prophet in the north, the kingdom of Israel, where they've got kind of fake temples set up. The real temple is in the south in Jerusalem. It's God's throne that he has set in the midst of his people. Why does Jonah here mention the temple? Say, so even though I've been driven out from your sight, in spite of that, I will again look toward your holy temple. It's because Jonah knows this, that the place of restoration is the place of sacrifice. That the way back into God's presence is through the offering of a substitute in his place, one whose blood will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so when Jonah longs to be back in God's presence and even states it with bold assurance, I'm driven from your sight, but in spite of that, I will again look to your holy temple. He's looking at the temple as the place where sacrifice is made, where the blood of a substitute is sprinkled on the mercy seat, and God forgives his people and atones for their sin. Even in his rebellion, Jonah knows boldly, we should say, that there is grace for sinners because there is sacrifice for sin. The Lord restores those whom he has driven away. Paul picks up on this imagery in, the book of, in his letter to the Ephesian church, 
We're speaking about the Jews and the Gentiles who have been brought together in one church. He describes them as those who were formerly far off, but have now been brought near. As those who were formerly strangers and aliens, but have now been made citizens of God's kingdom. Members of his very household, beloved children. All of that is captured by this imagery of the temple. The place of sacrifice, the place where sins are atoned for, for those who trust in God's promise of forgiveness. The Lord restores those whom he has driven away. And then finally, this third image of sin and salvation, that the Lord conquers death through his steadfast love in Christ. Uh, Verse 8 and verse 9 of the prayer are really climactic as Jonah wraps everything up in verse 7. He kind of summarizes his hope of forgiveness in verses 8 and 9. And in verse 8 in particular, he contrasts those who worship idols with those who put their hope in steadfast love, saying that those who pay regard, who worship vain idols, forsake their hope. They abandon their hope of steadfast love. what, What is steadfast love. This is an important word in the Old Testament. Uh, It's the Hebrew word chesed, which means you have to spit when you say it because it's all in the throat. Uh, C-H-E-S-E-D, if you will. Uh, It's the Old Testament word for grace. It's, uh, or it's one of the Old Testament words that communicates the grace of God. It's translated in different ways, uh, in different places, Uh, Most people think about it in terms of God's covenant mercy, that God makes promises to his people to save them, to be merciful to them, to forgive them, and that there is nothing that can get in the way of his fulfilling that promise. It's his oath to save his people no matter what comes in the way. It's covenant loyalty to his people. Jonah pleads this kind of indirectly, this steadfast love, uh, I think in some ways because he knows he is unworthy and undeserving of it. But it's a picture for us of how the Lord conquers death. For Jonah, this covenant faithfulness was seen as rescue from a watery death. Not, not rescue from the fish. The fish was the mode of rescue. He's talking about being rescued from drowning in the sea. In some ways, he looks at this rescue as a physical rescue. The fish comes to his rescue, but he knows that it is beyond that, that it is a rescue from death itself. We see that in this imagery of the bars being closed upon him forever and the Lord bringing up his life from the pit. Jonah here is pointing us ahead to the death-defeating work of Jesus in our place. You can think about it like this. If death here is pictured as bars enclosing a, a land or a city, once you're in, you can't get out. They close around you forever. Then Jonah is pointing us to the steadfast love of God in Christ in this way. It's as if Jesus has gone into the place of death. He died on the cross for us. Those bars closed around him uh, in what would be for us a permanent way. 
But because Jesus is a sinless substitute, because he is the righteous one in our place, he's able to go in and then set off the dynamite to blow the gates open and to rise again on the third day in glory and in triumph. He conquers death by the power of his sinless sacrificial love for his people, which is why Jonah says, idolatry is vain because we forsake steadfast love. There's no other thing that can rescue us from death. Only the steadfast love of Jesus, who entered in and busted through the gates in his resurrection, conquering death in our place. Sin brings us down, the Lord brings us up. Sin drives us out, the Lord restores us. Sin brings us death, but God conquers death through the work of Jesus in our place. How, how shall we respond to all of this? I'd like to point out three things, three things that I think are kind of missing from Jonah's prayer. And let me just say from the, from the outset, part of what's so challenging about reading the book of Jonah is he seems to be all over the place, right? There's just all this inconsistency. Just when we think he's got it, he blows it. Just when we think he has grasped God's grace and he's on his way in the right direction, he turns around and goes in the other direction. And so there's some debate about how genuine is this prayer of repentance. I think it's genuine, but I think it's partially so. <laughs> and I don't stand in judgment over Jonah. I just think in the context, that's what we see, uh, especially based on the ending of the book. But nonetheless, think about it this way. In other psalms in the Bible where it's a psalm praising God for deliverance, where there is sin involved, the one who writes the psalm always acknowledges the sin. You think about David and Bathsheba. When I hid my sin from you, it was like my bones dried up and all the life was sucked out of me. But then when I acknowledged my sin to you, you forgave my iniquity. Or in Psalm 51, he talks about the same thing. Cleanse me from my sin. Wash me. Make me new. There's an acknowledgement of sin. Where we know that there's a sin involved, the psalm of deliverance always acknowledges the sin. It should be noticeably absent from Jonah's prayer that he never acknowledges his sin. In fact, nowhere in the story does Jonah say, I was running and you brought me back. I hated the Ninevites, but now I love them. He doesn't acknowledge his sin. For us to experience the power of genuine repentance, there must be confession of sin. How do we do this? Let's define it by what we shouldn't do. How about that? Confessing sin does not mean that we say what we did and then follow it with but. But we do that, don't we? I know that I did this but. And then we start to blame shift. We start to make excuses for the things that we do. And we don't fully own our sin. Uh, we often confess with one hand and then take it away with the other. But if God's grace really brings up those who have been cast down, if 
God's grace really restores those who have been driven away, if God's grace has really conquered death through steadfast, unbreakable, unmoving love in Jesus, then we can be freed to confess deeply and honestly our sin and our need for redemption because God is a God who pursues with relentless grace. He is a God who brings up those who have been cast down from sin. Jonah points us ahead to Jesus. Though Jonah did not confess and own his sins, Jesus, the one greater than Jonah, took our sins as his own. Jesus took your sins on himself. He claimed them as his own on the cross so that we would be freed from the condemnation that comes to us because of his sin, because of our sin. He took them on himself so that we are free now to confess in the presence of a loving father. He hides no big stick. Even his discipline is love. And therefore, we can bring our sin into light through confession. Confession as part of genuine repentance. Secondly, one thing that one move at the heart of genuine repentance is concern. Confession of our sin, owning our sin before God, but also concern. Uh, the old writers used to talk about sin as uh, one of the effects of sin is that it bends us inward. It, it curves us in on ourselves uh, so that we are consumed with ourselves. We are consumed with what's most important to us. Jonah seems to be bent inward largely in this story, thinking about himself. The, the end of the story highlights that especially. While sin bends us inward, grace bends us outward. Because in grace, we see that our sins are forgiven and we see that our sins have affected others and have offended the one who has loved us, a holy God. And so part of repentance is that we no longer look simply inward, but we begin to look outward. You might think about it this way. Part of the fruit of repentance is that we begin to have a heart that reflects the compassionate heart of God towards others. This is part of the whole message of the book of Jonah, uh, that Jonah has to experience this grace from God so that he can preach it to the Ninevites. He doesn't quite get it, but God's at work showing him compassion nonetheless. If we have experienced the grace of God, the compassion of the Lord Jesus for ourselves, it is meant to turn us outward to think about others to ask how our sins have affected those around us, to see how our sins have affected or have offended the living God, and to seek how we might make it right through confession, uh, through seeking forgiveness and seeking to amend the ways that we live in a way that honors God. True repentance moves us from inward focus to outward focus. And then finally, constancy, which is just a word that starts with C, to mean faithfulness. <laughs> but I had to find one that started with C. Uh, faithfulness. Repentance ought to produce in us faithfulness. I mean, this is, again, the challenge with Jonah is he's just back and forth. He seems to waffle uh, all the time. And yet genuine repentance ought to produce in us a direction of faithfulness, a trajectory of walking in the same direction consistently 
with the Lord, that we aim to be faithful to God. Grace calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to keep moving in that direction. Every single one of you will falter. Every single one of you will take two steps forward and one step back. But where are we fixing our eyes? Are we fixing our eyes on Jesus? Jonah runs, and then he offers his life for others. He prays a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord. He even goes to Nineveh and gives God's message. Then he waits for their destruction. He's so happy about a tree that gives him relief, and then he's so angry when it dies, and he just wants to die as well. It's hard to handle Jonah's roller coaster temperament in the book. One of our students told Jeff that he, read, he was reading ahead and read through the whole book of Jonah and got to the end and said, what a bad ending. Because <laughs> Jonah's just like, he ends it and says, I just want to die. And God says, do you have a right to be angry? And it's just this strange ending. And Jeff will get there. He'll finish it off for us well. But it's hard to handle the back and forth. And what, you know, why doesn't everything resolve at the end of the story? Jonah seems to be up and down, back and forth, all over the place. And yet... He's a mirror for us. It would be tempting to look at Jonah and to think, what is wrong with this guy? I mean, can't he just get it together? And yet the whole purpose of the book is meant to point it back to us, to see ourselves in Jonah, to acknowledge for ourselves the complexity and the duplicity of our own hearts, to acknowledge that, that we too often seek God's deliverance without confession of our own sin, that we are happy to be rescued without having to say what we did to get us into the place of distress. Jonah's life reveals something about our hearts as well. But Jonah's not just a mirror. We would, we would sorely miss the point if we just looked at Jonah and saw our own inconsistency, our own lack of confession, our own lack of concern for others. If that's all we saw, we would miss the bigger point. Jesus says that Jonah's whole ministry, focused on the three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, is a picture of his life for us. It's a sign of the one who is greater than Jonah, a foreshadow of Jesus. Jonah's lack of confession for his own sin is matched by Jesus' Ownership and confession of your sins in your place as your substitute. Jonah's inward concern for self is matched by Jesus' self-giving love for us, his enemies, as he gives himself on the cross. Jonah's lack of constancy, his lack of faithfulness, is overcome by Jesus' steadfast faithfulness. Paul says that he became obedient all the way to death, even death on a cross to bear our sins away. That God loved us even when we were his enemies. That this is the love of God demonstrated. That while we were yet sinners, while we were still hostile to him, Christ died for us to bring us back to him. Jonah's lack of constancy is overcome by Jesus' steadfast faithfulness all the way through death and into resurrection. And the good news is he did all of this for you. He even did it for Jonah. May we be those who respond 
by seeing how the Lord has brought us up from the depths of our sin, by seeing how the Lord has brought us out of exile and into his presence through sacrifice, through the atonement for our sins through Jesus. May we be those who see that Jesus has conquered death through his steadfast love, his death and his resurrection for us so that we might be confident to confess our sins with boldness, knowing that God's grace is for us, to exercise concern for others, seeing how we have offended others and how we have offended God with our sin and seeking to make it right by his grace. And may we be those who are so captured by God's grace that we walk in constancy and faithfulness for his glory. Would you pray with me?